Welcome to the I Save That podcast. I'm your host, Judy Thompson, the Director of Clinical Education at the Association for Vascular Access. We are gearing up for our annual scientific meeting in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I say annual, but as you know, this is our first in-person event since the pandemic, and I cannot wait to see all of you. This year's conference is one you won't want to miss. The topics and speakers are absolutely amazing. And we have a bunch of new names coming to our stage this year, as well as you'd predict many presenters you already know and love. This episode of our podcast is sponsored by Genentech. First segment, we get to hear from Dr. Laurel Works. She'll talk about patency and give a sneak peek into her webinar scheduled for September 7th. And then following Laurel, we'll talk to Ava's own Michelle DeVries and a newcomer to our show, that you're not going to want to miss is DJ Shannon. Both are infection preventionists and epidemiologists. These two are infectiously fun, pun intended. So let's kick it off with Dr. Laurel Wirtz. Welcome to our show. Laurel, you have a webinar coming up in just a little bit talking about patency. Can you give us a little teaser on that? Sure, sure. Um, I, I put some some content together around improving compliance with catheter patency. Um, I think we all know how important our catheter care maintenance bundles are, right? And 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 how much we need to pay attention and focus to each of the pieces of the bundle. But one of those pieces that's super important is patency. And so, you know, we're going to uh, talk a, a little bit about the bundle, but we're really going to focus on patency. And what are those best practices um, in terms of patency and the why? You know, I never like to do a talk unless we talk about the why, right? You can't exactly. really get into something unless you can connect dots and, and make it more powerful with the why. So we'll talk a little bit about the why as well. I'm excited about that because, you know, talking to friends that are working on the floors at the hospital, it's like they, they do more and more and more with less and less and less. And how do we get, I can't wait to hear your talk because how do we get compliance in a field where you're already worked to the nth degree and now you have one more thing you're supposed to get done. So I'm excited you're putting the why in there because if I don't know why I have to do it, it's not going to hit my, my task for today. Right. Yeah, it's never frustrating, as frustrating as coming on to your ship, getting 10 things to do right off the bat, and you go to assess a catheter and it's not patent, right? Doesn't that really screw up your whole mojo and your ship? You're just thinking, why would someone do that to me, right? So I think this is big. We got to do this together, um, and it really impacts everybody. Uh, Patency, not only the, the clinician, but the patient, um, and the organization. So we're going to really, you know, take a holistic view of the why so that we don't ever have to come on shift and pick up a completely occluded catheter because that's a bummer. Or the one that gets taped off and said, this one doesn't work. Sheesh, I hope we never find those anymore. But you're right. We still come across them every once in a while. Super dangerous, actually. And we're going right. to touch upon that as well. You know? Oh, good, good. Because I don't think people understand that it's not just, hey, the catheter is going to fail completely pretty soon, but it also has other sequelae attached to it. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's a cascade of events that can happen for your patient um, that, that we really need to prevent. And we have the capacity to, to prevent with knowledge and the ability to you know do best practices 
um, this is this is the way of the future. We get, we got to be doing the things that we know um, improve outcomes, and this is one of them. We got to get patency down. You know, it's one of those work smarter, not harder. Mm-hmm. Because it goes back to the basics. Like if you're playing basketball and you can't dribble, it's really hard to play basketball. If you get a catheter and it's not flushed or not flushable, yeah. you can't play either. Yeah. You can't play either. And I was kind analogy. of asleep on that cheesy analogy. I'd like to take a little second here and have a word from our sponsor, Genentech. This episode of the I Save That podcast is proudly sponsored by Ava industry partner, Genentech. It's important to ensure central line patency as an occluded line may complicate patient care by disrupting therapies or delaying procedures. According to the Infusion Nurses Society Standards of Practice and AVA I Save campaign, always aspirate for a positive blood return prior to administering medication and solutions. It's also important to include standardized patency checks and documentation in your protocols. For more information, contact your Genentech representative in your area at one 800 551-2231. Again, that's 1-800-551-2231. And now let's get back to talking about patency with Laurel. I feel so bad for the patients too, that they're sitting there with a dual lumen line and then somebody tapes one off and they don't know mm-hmm. that that's a dangerous situation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then when the catheter is not working, you know, what is the patient thinking in that bed? You know, did I do something wrong? Did you do something wrong? You got to think about it from the patient experience as well, which we all know is, is very important, connected to reimbursement these days, right? So uh, the patient experience is, is an important part of this as well. Most important is the outcome, though, for me. I mean, you know, we all know that you leave a catheter clogged and bad things can happen, including infections that can kill. So these are things we need to get under control for our patients, for sure. It just goes on and on and on. And then I'm really excited to hear about how we can increase compliance. Because like I said before, it's the laundry list of things that are uh, the nurses are asked to do on a daily basis now. It's just astronomical. And then trying to get us away from a computer to chart is another problem. You bet. That's, you know, if you, it's a magic uh, bullet, the, the key, right, is, is developing some type of culture and a set of processes that go around focusing on compliance so that we've kind of hardwired the things that we will do and we won't do. And I think when we approach it as a team and we all take it on and we all agree to it and we have those solid processes in place, um, and a set of kind of checks and balances along the way, that's really where the key lies. And that's the talk is going to go into that. We're going to go into the details and some of the fun stuff around, well, how do you change culture? How do you get there? Right? Because that's that's the key. That's going to be amazing. Because truly, I was just thinking about that coming on shift, and then you, you round on your patients, and you see that you have a catheter that one lumen's occluded. I'm going to keep going back to that one because mm-hmm. it's happened to all of us. Right. And is the accountability there? I say, Laurel, what, what's up? Why did you, did you address this? Yeah. And maybe that nurse is new. Maybe the I nurse think so did. many times it, it doesn't even get called out. The, right. you know, by the time the nurse finds it clogged, the other nurse is left and you're like, 
oh man, you know, know. sometimes they don't even speak up. So what's that culture like? And is there accountability back to the nurse that it Mm -hmm. left? Probably not. Probably not. They're off shift. They're sleeping. You're not going to call them and say, hey, what's up with this? And then it's going to perpetuate. It's going to happen again and again. So I think there's a lot to it. It's not just as simple as flush it and leave a patent catheter. Laurel, let's take another short break to hear a word from our sponsor, Genentech. This episode of the I Save That podcast is sponsored by Ava industry partner, Genentech. It's important to ensure central line patency as an occluded line may complicate patient care by disrupting therapies or delaying procedures. Always aspirate for a positive blood return prior to administering medication. As recommended by INS, include and document standardized patency checks into your protocols. For more information, contact a Genentech representative in your area at 1-800-551-2231. Again, that's 1-800-551-2231. Now, Laurel, let's get back to the complexities of patency. Sure. It's very complex, as most things in healthcare are, right? (laughs) If it were that simple, you know, we'd have it all figured out. I know. So this will be good. So other things going on. What else is going on in New York for you? Let's get down to fun stuff as well. Oh, boy. New York. New York is hustling and bustling. We're coming back. Uh, Was the epicenter of the COVID pandemic, as you all know. Um, and we really had a, a couple tough years, a few different waves, but I really feel like our vibe is coming back. That New York City vibe that you get um, yeah. and the energy when you walk in the city, uh, that there's more activity, there's more tra- people traveling. So this is all good. You know, and and you said in the beginning, just as just as we're getting over or finding a way to handle uh, COVID, what pops up? Monkeypox. And now we got <laughs> now we're in the center of the monkeypox. You know, so but it's interesting. I feel like once you once we overcame COVID, it became more palatable to learn from that and then apply it to other things like the monkeypox. We very quickly knew exactly what we needed to do communicate, teamwork, you know, make sure that we had all of the tools and resources available, um, that we were transparent. All these things that we learned from COVID, we applied them immediately. And now we're feeling almost better about it. It's like, hey, we can conquer anything. I think you're right. I think you're right. We have, you know, there's so many things that we have learned from COVID. And that's the positive spin on it. That, you know, we, we are adaptable. We can work. We can pivot on this stuff. Yeah. And still have a life going on and having the New York vibe back. That's incredible mm-hmm. to hear. It's exciting. We, just, we went to the theater this weekend, obviously not in New York. I'm in San Diego, but okay. it's what so nice. Uh, Pretty Woman. Oh, so fun. Yay. It was fun. Way fun. I just, I love the theater. I love a musical, but I think just getting back into the normalcy of life and it's right. nice. We still have to take, precautions and be smart but getting back to life is amazing and Mm -hmm. fortunately I think right now the strain of COVID that is rampant Mm -hmm. is not quite as um, life-threatening for most people so that's a blessing and that is indeed so Laurel with all the things that are going on we've got so much 
I don't want to use the burn the word burnout, but I think a lot of people have in our specialty in nursing, not our specialty vascular access per se. And we're losing a lot of staff. Are you guys having any problems with keeping enough staff and hiring on your side of the country? Yeah, I, we definitely felt the struggle throughout the pandemic. Nurses leaving in droves, either deciding to retire um, because of the stress and, and, and the overload yeah. of work, or nurses choosing to go travel, right? And that was an option. Um, and, and there was a, a huge gap left behind. Uh, and it, now an influx of brand new nurses. Now in urban areas, especially in major academic medical centers where I work, we don't struggle as much because it's a you know prime place to want to start your career or go and build your resume, right? So we're able to attract um, and retain talent pretty well. Even so, even though we're sitting in an urban area with this ability to do that, we still have gaps and we are still filling vacancies. And even more, you know, in terms of a shift in where we really need to focus right now for patient safety is it's an influx of brand new nurses. So what does that skill mix look like? How are we supporting new nurses? And remember, these nurses just went through nursing school completely virtual. So we're finding a really fascinating phenomenon that, that's happening where they're getting to the units and, gee, they've never done a bed bath. They've never done basic cares uh, because everything was virtual. They never did anything hands-on. So what we've been having to do is respond to that. And now we've been giving basic nursing courses like that and, and just kind of doing a hands-on thing at, at New York Presbyterian. And it's really working well. Um, but who thought we'd have to be there, right? So I think it's always being in tune, always doing your gap analysis. Where are the gaps? And then trying to meet where those gaps are. Super important. But yes, there's been a huge uh, shift in staffing. That's fascinating. I hadn't even thought about that aspect of it, that mm -hmm. these, these nurses did graduate, grow up through a virtual experience. Right. Because I know yeah. when you and I went to nursing school, it's, it was a minute or two ago. And, you know, <laughs> but our clinicals were the things that stand out. At least it was for me is like, okay, my first day in an ICU is like, holy Ooh, boy, yeah. there's a lot of pumps in there. And seeing things and experiencing, giving your first IM. Yeah. And they didn't get that experience on the sure. in the hospital. Even talking to patients. Right. The introductions and the, oh, the wow. dynamic between saying hello and just, you know, introducing yourself, doing handoffs and those types of things were, you know, very manufactured in their learning environment. And now they're real. So we've even seen a need to, to bolster that as well. Interesting. Right. That's yeah. a huge pivot right. for the hospital systems. Now I you're know in California, though, right? Yes. So you have ratios. We do. We don't have ratios. Oh, you don't. But what's interesting is that the Department of Health has now just started a new committee. They have a new clinical staffing committee, and all hospitals in New York are required, were required by early summer to pull together an interprofessional staffing committee. 
and decide on staffing ratios. And then they got published. They were just published today on our New York State Department of Health website on clinical staffing committees. Um, And so it's our own New York spin, I think, on moving towards, you know, more formal movement towards safe staffing. Interesting shift for New York here. That's amazing. So what's the ratio for a med search floor? Here in New York, it depends. Again, each hospital will be different because we don't have a mandated ratio. But we're looking more like in our med search units, one to five, one to six. California is a one to five for med search. Mm -hmm. So it's and it's been tough a lot of times because staffing is is difficult at some hospitals. And if you have a one to five in your primary care, you don't have any nurses aides on the floor. That's still a tough shift. Yep. Yep. It's a tough and shift. And support staff is also a gap for us, right? Filling those positions is also really vital to the cares that we give. And some of those have been very difficult to fill. So, yeah, we're really we're looking at a time, aren't we? It's, it's a time. A, it's, it's a time. interesting time to be in healthcare. Yeah. Without a doubt. Well, Dr. Worse, it's always so much fun to talk to you. I feel like I could just sit here and we could chit chat about different things <laughs> for hours and hours. Absolutely. But, um, I'm always here. Both of us have pretty good opinions, strong opinions, and mm-hmm. fortunately they align for the most part. So I think that's a good thing. Yeah, that is. <laughs> Otherwise it'd thing. be quite the interesting conversation for sure. <laughs> I'm very excited about your webinar coming up and I think it's going to just be a wealth of knowledge, especially trying really hard to get a lot of the students Mm -hmm. that with our PIB curriculum, we have a few hundred student memberships with Ava now and our webinars are free for them as well. Amazing. I think getting the information to these blank slates, if you will, it's great. I'm, I'm excited about that. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it too. All okay, right. guys. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Works. We'll see you on the, the other side with the video camera on. Now in the second half of our podcast, we get to transition a little bit away from specifically about patency and now talking about infection prevention, hospital onset bacteremia, COVID, monkeypox, Canada, the whole gambit with Ava's own Michelle DeVries. And new to our space is DJ Shannon. We're so excited to have our infection preventionist in the house. I know. We couldn't do our job without IPs, an epidemiologist, our infection preventionist. And we have our president-elect for 2023 coming up is Ms. Shelly DeVries here. Shelly, thank you so much. And congratulations on the new president-elect title. Hey, it is absolutely awesome to be back here. We love having you on the show and brought a friend with you today. And I'm going to give you the honor of bringing him on the show. All right. Well, it is my honor and pleasure to introduce you to my friend and colleague, DJ Shannon. He is another infection preventionist working here in the great state of Indiana, also with a Master of Public Health in Epidemiology and a Certified Infection Preventionist. But DJ has an awesome story, at least from my perspective, of coming into our life, originally working with the health department as we were facing drug-resistant organisms, and he was publishing and sharing on a state and federal level. 
And then he joined us in the hospital-based infection prevention world. And our paths crossed again as he started showing up at network meetings for AVA. So he has become a vascular access champion, as well as an infection preventionist and a freakishly knowledgeable guy when it comes to emerging and existing resistance. How's that, DJ? <laughs> Shelly, I think you um, you might be overselling me a little bit there, um, but <laughs> thank you all for having me and thank you for uh, wanting to listen to me ramble for a little bit. We do. We want to hear so much from you. I, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Did now, turn on profile for me for a second. I know our listeners can't see. Do you have a man bun? I love that. Oh, I do. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so um, cool. Hey. Oh, look at you go. Oh, my God. You have nice hair. You and Shelly look like you're related. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> but I digress, which is not abnormal <laughs> for me whatsoever, whatsoever. So there is so much crazy stuff going on in our world. We at Ava have been so interested in hospital onset bacteremias as a overarching, every line matters. It's not just central venous access. And I'd love to get your opinion, have you weigh in as an epidemiologist, infection preventionist on the movement that's going on that hopefully we're going to start truly looking and tracking all devices. Hospital onset bacteremia is such an interesting space because who owns it? Is it infection prevention? Is it nursing? Is it phlebotomy? Is it the lab? Is it vascular access? But the honest answer is it's all of us. You know, this is such an interesting world where we all kind of collide for better or for worse. And there are so many different implications, whether that be, um, you know, from an infection prevention perspective and potentially if that patient has a central line and end up becoming a, a clabsy and or what if it's you know, they don't have a, a CVC, but it is, you know, just, a, I don't want to say just, but like a peripheral access or, and then, you know, and there are vascular access specialists are getting um, worried and upset about it for good reason. And so what if it's, you know, the blood draws that are becoming the issue? And so is it phlebotomy or, you know, is it nursing? And so it can really just become uh, problematic in so many different ways. So it's such a great time to start talking about it, especially as that uh, benchmark is being looked at. Absolutely. And you know, I know Shelly, I want to go back for a second because Shelly said that you publish, you worked for, I want to say CDC again. And, but tell us about some of your publications and please, and some of your prior adventures before you got. Um, yeah. So my background, uh, before I came to work in the hospital, I did work for the state health department in Indiana. I, at that, in that role, I did work quite closely with um, partners at the CDC, but my, my area was antimicrobial resistance. And that's originally where, how I met Shelly to you know, collaborate or, you know, work on various efforts as CRE was really kind of becoming a big problem, gosh, six years ago now. And so then uh, I was able to really get to do a lot of really fun and, and cool things uh, at that level at the health department and working with the CDC. And we had such a great lab that we were kind of ahead of the curve and being able to do PCR-based testing and identify all these molecular mechanisms for resistance and um, really be able to do some really fun and cool public health and infection prevention uh, activities, I guess, and, and implement some prevention efforts at, from a state level. And so while I was there, I was able to publish uh, with the CDC on things like novel CRE. And, and then as this new, I'm sure you guys are hearing about this new fungus called Candida auris that's coming around to everybody's desk now. You know, we were working on things um, back then in, in 2016 and 17 and publishing then. And so we really got to do some, some fun work 
looked through the public health lens before coming over here. And then, like Shelly said, she started seeing me um, popping up at all these different um, networking events for vascular access as I was trying to just learn anything and everything I could in my role here. We've talked so much about our our passion for expanding surveillance beyond peripheral IVs. And, and DJ touched on it. Who owns when we talk about hospital onset bacteremia? But I thought his perspective could be so valuable for us because we spent a lot of time talking about the individual patient and the impact on the human level at the person level. But when we talk about broader prevention, we start talking about, for me, what I call world peace, because if we can prevent these infections and focus on them, the bad, bad stuff that's out there with resistant organisms, we can maybe slow the progress or impact at least local antibiograms. And I thought he comes from such a unique place because as he's straddling all of these worlds, the weird and wonderful laboratory side of drug resistance, the frontline infection preventionist, and now this, this really, DJ, aren't you the chair of your CLABSI initiative at the organization? Or the vascular? Um, yeah, so, yeah, we um, we started a vascular access committee before COVID started, and, and I'm one of the co-chairs, yeah. And I've even seen uh, my friend DJ reaching out about building vessel health and preservation bundles. So again, from the, the bridging infection prevention and vascular access from the epidemiology lens, instead of just traditional infection prevention, how do we work together to preserve the vessel health? And then again, he came to my mind so highly because that story of resistance isn't one that we talk about a lot in, in AVA because we're, we're focused on different outcomes, but the reality of this emerging resistance is terrifying. And maybe it's because I work in an absolute region that is a hotbed of resistance, which is why DJ and I had the opportunity to get to know each other during his time in public health. But I think it's a message that's so important for our vascular access clinicians to understand how the role they play and the decisions they make and the assistance with their investigation can really have a much bigger public health influence too if we really step back and take a look at what's going on and, and what the possibilities are. Would you agree, DJ? Yeah, I think you you know you summarized that quite nicely. And um, you know, somebody that I a discipline that I didn't call out a minute ago is was pharmacy. Is if we're thinking about blood culture and contamination, how, how many of these contaminated blood cultures end up getting treated, and then they never needed to be. And then that's how we end up developing resistance. You know, our pharmacy colleagues are going to definitely play a, a huge role in this space as well as we start to thinking about antimicrobial stewardship and then potentially de-escalating antimic antimicrobials. And it's a very exciting time as uh, we can see how we can kind of put all of our, our brains together and, and work on this very unique problem. I'm so glad you brought that up, the uh, blood culture contamination consideration, because it's it's a space, too, that in AVA, bringing phlebotomy into our fold deeper and deeper as well. And the blood culture contamination is going to be one of the complementary measures for hospital onset bacteremia. So even though it may be a space that's not front and center for vascular access, getting our heads around what we can do collaboratively to bring down those rates, because they drive treatment, they drive unnecessary admissions, increased length of stay, and then obviously drug resistance on a very real level. Um, it's some scary stuff that I think has been overlooked 
and underappreciated like so many other topics because there's so many things that seem like they're bigger priorities, but specimen stewardship, whether it's the blood culture, or quite honestly, in other aspects of our world, the urine culture or the wound culture, getting specimen stewardship as part of what we do, and then understanding the significance of our specimen collection and the ramifications of poor collection, because bad things happen. I think it's a very cool jump here. And, uh, you know, apologize for my naivete. This is like really kind of mind blowing discussion here. So, and imagine DJ seeing this when he goes to these local area network meetings and he's seeing people are like so excited about, you know, some accountability about peripheral IV access, the things that aren't being held accountable, the same bloodstream that we're accessing. And then taking that like, hey, any kind of vascular access device can cause a bloodstream infection. And then taking that another step further into the mind or realm of IP or infection preventionists and saying, there's so much hazard potentially, you know, that needs to be addressed, like, uh, you know, organism resistance that we're, we're not, that's not, like you guys had said, that's not even a discussion that we see all that often and such a cool, I, my mind is blown. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, Oh man, you know, like all of a sudden the dots connected, you know, <laughs> you know, I've been uh, in quality. I've worked with IP um, working with vascular access teams, kind of bridging the gap and developing committees like this in new vascular access teams in my career. And I don't even think that this discussion has even come up. So this is really kind of, I don't know, emerging for us, like this whole discussion point is like, not only do we need to have vascular access devices accountable across the spectrum there from, you know, the peripheral IV all the way to the central line, but also that tie in with, like you guys were saying, pharmacy and antibiotic stewardship uh, in conjunction with the infection preventionist. And, you know, the interdisciplinary model here that's really evolving in this discussion is just awesome. So, you know, that's what we've always talked yeah. APIC and AVA or just IPs and vascular access. We're, we're siblings. We have to be in the same room together. Yeah. We can't. We, in the room where it happens, Judy. In the room where it happens. In the room where it happens. We're pulling back all these layers. And in the hospital, there's so many tasks that are being asked upon nursing. And a lot of times we don't think about the IPs. And I remember when we first, they were first asking about hospital onset bacteremias. And I saw a lot of IPs weigh in about, no, we don't have time. We don't have this. We don't have that. And I was a little frustrated, but li listening to you two talking about the, all the things that you guys know about that we don't, I see that. How much stuff can you do? Right now, you, you've dealt with COVID for the better part of three years. You have all these other emerging diseases. Prior to that, we had Ebola. We have Marburg. We, and now we have flipping monkeypox. How, how do you guys keep up? <laughs> Shelly, I'm going to go to you on, on monkeypox and keeping up. And then DJ, I want to get your input here. Well, maybe the first answer is I don't sleep. You okay. Um, and monkeypox is an interesting one because unless my memory is incorrect, last time there was monkeypox, it was the first time ever in the Western Hemisphere. And it was right down the street from me in Valparaiso, Indiana with the illegal exotic underground pet trade. Um, so it was really interesting. That's also when the first 
MERS cases were happening, which was also down the street for me. So if you don't think Northwest Indiana is the place to be between our drug resistance and our monkeypox and our MERS, um, you can go down the block and you know head to Indianapolis and see DJ. We've got a, a really strong network in infection prevention. We receive notices electronically from the health department, from the CDC, from our colleagues. So there's a continual stream of information that goes out and infection prevention does not know borders from our individual hospitals. So we speak very freely and engage and we share our policies openly because quite honestly, at least in a community like mine, we share our patients. You can drive 15 minutes and hit four different hospital systems where I live. So there's a lot of very open sharing and communication through, those are probably our most popular networks and the phone never stops ringing. That sounds about right. (laughs) Um, Shelly said she doesn't sleep, but I I just kind of live on coffee. You know, if if someone could just give me a a caffeine IV drip, I would be pretty excited about that. Yeah, we just, we have such a a close network of infection preventionists. And, and similar down here in my area, we, we do, of course, share patients, but we, we have all these regular meetings where we all just come together and, and share you know, our, our, our efforts and our best practices and how we're doing it and how they're doing it. And, you know, like monkeypox comes up and, and, and I'm like, oh gosh, I, I don't know what other hospitals are doing. And, and within five minutes, I have a text out to all the various hospitals and I'm getting answers quickly. And so it kind of keeps us all on the same page as best as we can and keeps us all kind of uh, from reinventing the wheel over and over again, because they, something out there just keeps throwing you know, new, new uh, epidemics or pandemics or outbreaks or what have you. you know, it, it just keeps us on our toes and we are always, 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 always on the go. So back at the beginning, when COVID popped up, there were, we're wearing N95s, we're duct taping our sleeves, we're doing the whole, the whole Monty basically with this. And then CDC changes the rules on the weekly basis. If you're symptomatic, you have to stay home. Well, if you're symptomatic or, or if you're positive and you're not symptomatic, now you can come to work. I mean, everything changed so quickly and crazily. What is the guidance right now on monkeypox? And can we, the vascular access folks that listen to this podcast, what do they need to do to protect themselves from other than not jumping in the bed and snuggling their patient before they put their line in? But what other things do we need to do as vascular access specialists to protect ourselves from contracting from the known patient, but more so from that patient that came in with endocarditis and then two days later, they rule in for monkeypox. I think the, the the best thing that anyone can do, whether you are a vascular access specialist, an environmental service technician, um, you know, an infectious disease physician, it does not matter your background. Standard precautions is, is the answer here. And so, you know, whether you're worried about monkeypox or COVID or Ebola, it doesn't matter. Standard precautions means that you just go into care assuming that somebody has something that you don't want. And so that means doing things like hand hygiene, wearing gloves. If you're going to do something that you think that you might get something splashed back up in your eyes, wear eye protection. You don't have to have your patient be in droplet-based isolation for some kind of respiratory pathogen to wear eye protection. Similarly with gowns, if you walk in and your patient has a bunch of vesicles all over their body, Put a gown on if you're worried about coming into contact with just anything, go for it. We have PPE now, <laughs> you know, that we're through the worst of the pandemic. You know, we have PPE for a reason, and it doesn't have to be a one-to-one of my patient is in isolation, therefore I wear a gown. You know, so standard precautions is really putting the kind of power 
in the the provider or the clinician's hands to say, you know what, I'm going to just protect myself because there's something kind of potential that I could be exposed to. So Shelly, I have a question for you. I I know you travel a lot and knowing that this can be transmitted skin to skin, I'm talking about monkeypox right now. And if you're on an airplane and snuggling up to the person next to you and the, you know, the lavish seats we get at airlines, how do we protect ourselves? It's just Shelly and Judy, Blake and DJ going on a trip to Yellowstone. For instance, well, Judy, I'm going to just be very clear. I don't generally have a lot of skin to skin contact with the other passengers, um, even when I'm flying economy. So I, I, we may need to talk about some of your travel patterns. I'm friendly. <laughs> Sounds like you're doing it wrong, Judy. <laughs> I, I feel like we're going to sidebar that conversation. But um, yes, I do travel. And as things have continued to change and evolve, I do still travel. I will practice great hand hygiene always because I, you may not know I am an infection preventionist. So hand hygiene always was, is, and always will be a thing. You know, examine your environment. If your environment is not clean, wipe it down. That's common sense, regardless of what we're looking at. And I do still wear a mask and I will probably continue to wear a mask for quite some time when I'm in crowded condition. That's my comfort level. That's my preference. And that's what I will continue to do. But I'm not overly concerned about getting, you know, hopefully words I'm never going to have to live to regret, but I'm not overly concerned about catching monkeypox as a result of air travel. I'm glad to hear that. I mean, I don't snuggle with the pe- person next to me. You know, if I'm in the middle seat, I do. It's not what we heard. But, <laughs> but this was all actually in seriousness because, you know, the seats are pretty close together and the armrests are pretty close. And if they have a lesion and they have the little arm, their arm on the armrest and then my arm goes on it, can I contract it? And so I, don't, I don't know enough. So I used to do a lot of teaching for our first responders and we would teach the golden rule. If it's wet and it's not yours, don't touch it. I'd say, don't lick it, smell it, taste it, try to figure out where it came from. If it's wet and it's not yours, don't touch it. If anybody has visible lesions, like this is good for in the hospital and in real life, don't touch lesions. It's bad. Nothing good is going to come out of handling other people's lesions, regardless of their source. DJ, would you echo me on that? Yes. Yeah, it does sound like you're speaking from experience, though, Shelly. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think she probably is. And so back back to the question of is surface transmission possible? I would say it can never be ruled out. Fomite transmission is a part of contact transmission for a lot of different organisms. So is there a theoretical? Yes. But again, we're talking about open lesion to skin and having enough contact and enough time to cause transmission. So DJ, you need to be part of our gang. This was your initiation into Ava. I'm I'm sorry if you didn't know that, but now you you, you are <laughs> <Ava>. to me. <laughs> you know, Blake was saying something earlier about me kind of starting to come to these uh, networking meetings and all of a sudden hearing everybody talk about you know more than just the central line, and and that's exactly what happened for me. So I sort of you know drank the Kool Aid, so to speak, back then when all of a sudden I, I joined this local AVA network um, for IndyVan, and everybody is talking about things that are just big picture patient safety issues. It's not only the, the central line because of the possible CLABSI. 
is what I say all the time is that my patient doesn't care where their bacteremia came from. They don't care if it came from a peripheral IV or for a central line. And, and that's really what I saw at this meeting. And that got me so excited. And um, since then, you know, like Shelly said a minute ago, like I'm kind of straddling all of these worlds because they, I can't decide what I'm most passionate about. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to do it all. I think it's crazy. Like, so you're kind of drinking Kool-Aid and I'm listening to this conversation and I'm like, Oh, you know, like next level stuff for me. Cause I'm like, I didn't, you know, the concept of multiply drug resistant organisms and resistance is not something new, but when you tie that to, you know, blood culture treatment uh, for false positives or, um, resistance that can develop from that. And then thinking about all these bacteremias that have never been attributed or held accountable to non-central lines. It's fun when we get, yeah. we get people that talk about things that we know concepts, but we don't know details and it, it's fun to learn and fun mm-hmm. to hear from you guys. And I can't thank you guys enough for being here. Yeah. This is fun. DJ, I, I want it. you to come back. You need to be part of our tribe. We are your tribe. I am happy to come back. I'm uh, glad that you has uh, opened your arms and, and welcomed me on. Yeah. Oh, you just got the biggest contagion hug ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, as always, thank you so much for the invitation to join. I saved that podcast. Thank you so much for being yeah. here. You guys, our IPs are our friends. You guys need to reach out to yours at your facilities because they really will help you do your job and save our patients. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. You can see the entire AVA calendar on the AVA website at www.avainfo.org, which is also where you can join AVA or donate to the AVA Foundation. Don't miss Facebook Fridays, where we are live at noon Eastern time each week. Toss us a question or give us a like. We're on all the social media platforms. You can follow the Association for Vascular Access on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest. Make sure you're subscribed to the I Save That podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or Google Play Music. Now here comes the legal stuff. The topics discussed on the I Save That podcast are purely for informational purposes. You should personally seek the guidance of clinicians before making any decision that affects your health or the health of your patients. Listeners of this podcast are advised to do their own due diligence when it comes to making vascular access decisions. Our goal is to inform and entertain the healthcare landscape while giving you a starting point for your discussions with your own clinicians and professional advisors. By listening to this podcast, you agree that the host, our guests, our sponsors, and the Association for Vascular Access are not responsible for the success or failure of your health, your career, or any decision you make related to any information we've presented. The I Save That podcast contains segments of copyrighted music that was not specifically authorized to be used, but is protected by federal law and the fair use doctrine as cited in Section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Act. If you have any specific concerns about this broadcast or our position on fair use defense, please contact us at podcast at avainfo.org. No part of this broadcast shall be reproduced, transmitted, or sold in whole or in part or in any form without the prior written consent of the Association for Vascular Access.
And oh. lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say with me and Shelly, that's gonna get really interesting. <laughs> it, it generally does. It generally does for so many reasons. One, you guys, many of you are fun, but you guys seem to be fun. <laughs> but we don't they know do what exist. you know. 